Good morning. I'm Carrie Lambert, a covenant member here at Selma, and I'm going to read our scripture this morning, which is John 5, 19 through 25. And if you have the red Bible um, in your row, it is page 946. John 5, 19 through 25. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one but has given all judgments to the Son so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Um, like Brandon said, my name is Steve Jager, and I am on staff here at Soma Midtown as the Director of Community Formation, um, and I, it's just really good to be here with you this morning. Before we actually get into the sermon and having just heard uh, God's Word from John 5, what I'd like to do is just a practice that we have on Sunday mornings as we get ready to hear from God's Word. Um, it's just to take 30 seconds or so of silence to be calm and still before Him and just let the Holy Spirit begin to do his work in our hearts, all right? So let's take just a few moments here to be quiet and let God do his work. Lord, would you speak in the stillness of our hearts this morning and let our our ears and our hearts be attuned to the things that you want to say. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, in case you are just joining us here at Soma for the first time or if you've been sort of in and out over the last several weeks, I want to catch you up on where we are because today is actually the concluding message in a five-week series that we have been doing. This has been a series uh, that we call a a formation series. These are just occasional sermon series that we do that focus on some practice of spiritual formation that is central to our life following Jesus. And this one that we've been looking at for the last four weeks and we're finishing today is on the practice of preaching the gospel. Now, if you're familiar with spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices, this might not be one that you have often thought of as being part of that cornucopia of disciplines that is common in the Christian life. But as we've been hearing over the last several weeks, 
This is actually central to our identity as the people of Jesus. And my hope today is that when we walk out of here and we, we take the accumulated assets of everything that God has said to us over the last several weeks, we are going to see how this, this practice, this discipline of preaching the gospel is not only something that we as Christians are called to do, but it's something that is deeply forming and life-giving for us. So over the last four weeks, I'll just give you a quick summary. We have talked about a foundation for being gospel proclaimers, gospel preachers, is by becoming gospel people. We learn to preach the gospel by first being gospel people. We've talked about hospitality as the fundamental work of bearing the good news of Jesus, the one who brought the hospitality of God to us. We've talked about what it looks like to give a reason for the hope that we have. That's the language coming out of 1 Peter. Um, give reasons for that hope as we build authentic relationships with other people. We've talked about the necessity of both proclamation and presence, both our words and our, our lives in proximity to other people, getting our hands and our feet doing what our mouths are saying. And all of these things are interwoven with one another. You can't separate clearly any of them into different aspects of preaching the gospel. The same thing, I think, is true of this fifth aspect that we're going to look at today. It's interconnected with all of these, but it also underlies all of them to a degree. As with the other messages in this series, this is not going to be about a technique for sharing our faith. We did talk briefly about kind of a one framework for sharing your faith. Uh, a couple weeks ago when Brandon preached on 1 Peter chapter 3, he mentioned this, this tool or way of sharing the gospel called the four-chapter gospel. If that's something that you're interested in learning more about, please go back and listen to his message from 1 Peter 3. But what we're going to talk about today is instead a basic posture and commitment that are part of preaching the gospel. And it's also about a basic skill that we need to develop. It's not a skill in memorizing Bible verses or drawing gospel explanation diagrams. There's a place for those things, especially knowing God's Word so well that we can share it with somebody else. But this is really about having those be part of the conversation on another foundation, another skill. And that skill is the practice of paying attention, the practice of noticing. Now, it might seem kind of odd to end a series on preaching the gospel with a message like that. It seems a little bit off the wall. But if we're going to be intentional about cultivating this skill and then responding in faith to what God reveals to us as we notice, as we pay attention to life, then we cannot help but become preachers of the gospel. When we pay attention to what God is doing around us and we respond in faith to that, what that makes us is people who proclaim the gospel to the world around us. So, the practice of paying attention. I, you might also say the power of paying attention. If you are a parent or a teacher, and I know there are a lot of you in those categories in this room, you probably have dozens of conversations every day, not to mention every week, that are on this subject of paying attention. Put down your phone and look me in the face Pay attention. Stop swinging the lightsaber around over there. You're going to hit somebody in the face. Please pay attention. That is a red light. Put your foot on the brake. Now, pay attention, followed by a four-letter word. 
We know that paying attention is an important thing. We know that noticing what's going on in life is an important thing because we see what happens when we don't do it. Now, I feel like I tell this story too much, and I'm gonna, I'm, I would like to make this the last time I tell the story, but it's really, unfortunately, a perfect example of what I'm trying to talk about here. We moved into our house just over a year ago. We, uh, we had a home inspection, uh, as, you, as you do, but as is always the case with those, they can't catch everything. There's always going to be something that kind of slips through. But there were some things about our home inspection that, in retrospect, we really think they should have caught. Uh, really, they seemed to be things that the previous owners of the house should have known about because they were staring them right in the face, but it really appears that they just did not pay attention to some big stuff. Within a week of moving into our house, we noticed that the dishwasher was not working properly. It wasn't actually cleaning the dishes, which is what it's supposed to do. And that's even after we cleared out the filter. On top of that, some of the hardwood floor planks right in front of the dishwasher and the sink next to it were kind of warped and they were starting to buckle. It seemed like it was just the simple result of a little bit of water splashing out of the sink onto the floorboards many times and not being dried up many times. So it was annoying, but we thought, okay, this is something that we can handle. We can, I think we probably even know how to fix that. Eventually, we couldn't handle the broken dishwasher anymore, though, because I can only rewash dishes so many times. So we bought a new one, and the day that we brought the new one home to install, we pulled the old one out to get the new one in, and lo and behold, underneath the dishwasher, the floor is sopping wet, soft to the touch, and black. And a repairman who came in quickly confirmed our fears it was mold, and it was under the floor. All of this appears to have happened because the previous owners, whose names I will not mention, didn't pay attention to very obvious signs that should have been clear that something wasn't right. I'm going to spare you all the details, but the result of that inattention was a complete replacement of the floor, the cabinets, the countertops, essentially a remodel of the entire first floor of our house. All because somebody didn't pay attention over a long period of time to signs that something was going on. Friends, paying attention is important. <laughs> now make this jump with me, if you will. Jesus was a person who paid attention. Jesus could have fixed my dishwasher. Jesus had a practice of paying attention, a practice of noticing, and he had it down pat. He paid attention to God and he paid attention to people and circumstances around him in a way that was just uncanny. The insight that he had into people's thoughts, their interior world, their motivations, it was astounding when you read the stories in the New Testament. And when he paid attention, he was able to discern what God was doing. And more than that, he would then move to join God in that work. In essence, that is how Jesus preached the gospel. He understood that he had been sent by his father. He saw what his father was doing out in the world when he paid attention to it. And he moved to join his father in that work that he'd already started. And so if we're looking for some kind of method to preaching the gospel, that's it right there. And so here's what we're going to do today. From John 5 that Carrie read for us, 
we and maybe some other passages too, we are going to look at these three essentials to preaching the gospel. And then we're going to ask or examine three things about each of those elements. First, how did Jesus display that? Second, how can we display it in our life now? And then third, what are some of the practical barriers that we come up against when we try to live this out in real life? Let's go ahead. We're just going to jump right into John 5 right now. So the passage that we heard was a short section of a longer speech that Jesus makes in John chapter 5. It's a speech in which he is establishing his authority as the Son of God. But we're not actually going to look at the speech for that particular message in it today. Our focus instead is going to be really on verse 19 that began the passage that we heard. Jesus said, The Son, meaning himself, is not able to do anything on his own or of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he's doing. We're going to zoom in on the seeing and then how Jesus does this joining of God's work in a few minutes. But right now, what I want us to consider is that Jesus says he has been sent by his Father in verses 23 and 24. That sentness is actually going to show up again in the longer speech that this is a part of, verses 30, 36, 37, 38. Being sent in John's gospel says a lot about who you are as a person. It says a lot about what you do in the world, why you're here. Back in chapter 1, in the opening of John's gospel, we meet John the Baptist, who is not the John of John's gospel. It's a different guy. John the Baptist is sent by God, and he's sent to be a herald of the good news that the Messiah, the promised Savior, is about to arrive on the scene. Now, by contrast, right in the same, same series of stories as John the Baptist right there, There's another sending that's going on, and it's when some priests are sent by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, to investigate John the Baptist and what he's talking about, and they're questioning him out of suspicion rather than faith. And as the story of Jesus unfolds throughout the Gospel of John over and over and over again, literally dozens of times, I lost count when I was studying, we see that Jesus is sent by God. And as that sent one, he is fulfilling the message that's being preached by John the Baptist and is being opposed by these Pharisees and priests who are sent from somewhere else. There are these two opposing sendings that are going on in the Gospel of John. So what does it mean that Jesus was sent into the world? Well, for one thing, it means that his arrival was planned. Jesus' Jesus arrival wasn't accidental or haphazard. He wasn't late or early, kind of like Gandalf. He arrives exactly when he intends to. It wasn't this scrambling, cobbled-together, last-minute rescue plan, kind of like a spiritual Apollo 13. It was planned by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. And not only was his arrival planned, but it was purposeful. Jesus was not sent by God to just come down, take a look around, see how screwed up everything is, and then destroy it all. No, in John 3, 17, Jesus says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
There is much, much more to say about Jesus being sent by God, but we need to jump ahead to a couple of things that he says toward the end of the gospel in chapter 17 and in chapter 20. In 17, verse 18, Jesus is praying to his Father for the disciples, and he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And then a couple chapters later, 20, verse 21, he's talking directly to his disciples, and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. An essential part of being a follower of Christ is that you are sent into the world. And we are sent, Jesus says, in the very same way that he was sent. And that means that our sending was planned and purposeful too, just like his was. As insignificant as you might feel in the world or maybe in God's plan for the world, it is no accident or some fallback plan B that you, yourself, by name, were intended by God to represent him to other people in this world. And as ill-equipped as you might feel, your sending is full of purpose and intention. God's intention is that you, yourself, by name, would be a bearer of the good news that he is making all things new in Christ. That you would be a preacher of that gospel. And that intention, that purpose right there, this is not the the demanding will of a tyrant. Jumping to John 17 again, Jesus prays, Father, you have sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. So being sent by God is inextricably bound up with being loved by God. All of this matters because it shapes our identities. It tells us who we are in this world. We are beloved sent ones. Sent from the one true God, commissioned with a Father's love to tell the world that its King has finally come and that that means something for everybody's life. But we all experience barriers to remembering, believing, living out that kind of sentness in our lives. We all experience it. Now, I do think that some of the barriers that exist to recognizing that we're sent, I think some of them are lower at Soma because as a church, we have a pretty high degree of awareness. There's a a collective identity here that we are sent by God out into the world. I love it. It's one of the most beautiful things about our church. Even still, all of us can forget from time to time or even for long periods that we are sent or all all the things that that might mean. Some of our barriers to being sent can be very localized. They can be centered on specific people, on specific communities. None of us is immune to the subtle prejudice that can creep in about people that we would just rather not be sent to because it, it feels too uncomfortable or I'm just not sure that the gospel's really for them. We would, we'd never say that, but we have no idea how to communicate it and that's underneath. Or we might have some barriers that come from assumptions about our sentness about how planned or how purposeful it really is. Maybe we're convinced that we are too ineffective to be of use, or we are so indispensable to God's mission that really, in effect, it's, it's kind of our mission, and we'll, we'll set everything up and Jesus can just back clean up and get everything done. Maybe we are impeded by having a different purpose in mind for what our sentness is, a different purpose in God's intentions, 
preaching a gospel that's mostly about politics and parties and policies, or a gospel that's mostly about winning, getting the church back up on top of culture, or a gospel that's really about correcting all those other Christians who just don't get it, who they think differently than I do. I think the biggest barrier to seeing ourselves as sent ones in the world is that we don't see our sentness as a reflection of Jesus' own kind of sentness because his kind of sentness is one where he gave his life. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that to be sent as Jesus was in that way, it's not necessarily true that in preaching the gospel, we're going to be called to literally lay, lay down our lives. Some people certainly will be. But every one of us who follows Christ is called to die to ourselves, to put other people first, to relinquish our rights, to risk being seen as fools or attacked as enemies because we are trying to make the good news known. Now, our response here is simply to reflect on how or whether we really do see ourselves as sent by God. Are you aware, as you, as you think through your life, are you aware of any movement from God to send you to someone or, or to a group or to a place, and you're resisting that somehow? What's going on inside that resistance? Notice what's happening there and see what God says about that. He'll never say something judgmentally. He'll never condemn you. He'll invite you to understand what a new level of following him can look like. So the first part of Jesus' pattern of preaching the gospel is understanding ourselves as sent ones. The second part returns to where we kind of started today, this practice of paying attention, this practice of noticing. Jesus saw, he noticed, what the Father was doing in the world around him. Now, it's kind of tempting to think that because Jesus was God in the flesh, he could simply look around and see and know everything. Like he just knew it all. Sort of like wearing these ultimate augmented reality glasses where when he looks at a person, this little tag pops up and it gives them all the details about who they, who they are. Like, oh, that guy's cheating on his taxes and oh, she did not forgive her mother for that harsh word the other day. That is not the way it worked. I don't think that's how it worked for Jesus. While he was fully human, or I'm sorry, while he was fully God, he was also fully human. And the Bible teaches that in becoming fully human, Jesus subjected himself to the constraints and the limitations of humanity. He had a body that got tired and that could only be in one place at a time. He had a mind that needed to learn. He had emotions that he needed to feel and express. Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, tells us that even though he was in very nature God, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, clung onto, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, that is, that's big theology there in that passage. But what it means for us here in this discussion is that Jesus' perception of the world around him was filtered through his humanity. That's really important. Jesus was fully God, but he looked at the world as the first fully, completely faithful human being. 
His perception of God's presence and action was not clouded by sin in any way. We are rightly amazed by Jesus' ability to know what was going on inside other people and under the surface of situations. But the Bible is not trying to tell us that all of that was divine omniscience on his part, at least not all of it. Instead, what we're witnessing in Jesus is what a human being in full, unbroken relationship with God is able to do, perceive the world with spiritual clarity. Now, we do not perceive the world with the spiritual clarity, the perfect spiritual clarity of Jesus. If people claim to do that, they are starting to move into dangerous territory. However, it doesn't mean that we have no clarity, that we can't perceive anything about God's presence and work in the world. So if that's true, how can we learn to see the world in the way that Jesus did? What can train us to open our eyes to God's activity in people's lives so that we can somehow become gospel messengers to them? Well, sometimes that kind of clarity does not involve a whole lot of work on our part. God actually makes it kind of easy in some places. God has made some things so clear about how he works in the world and what he values in the world that we don't really need to wonder about what he's doing and whether we're called to them. I think of Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what's good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, we might have questions about what doing justice and loving mercy mean in any given situation, But we don't need to wonder if we should really be helping homeless people find long-term housing through poorhouse. God is working there. And he's inviting us to join him because we know his heart. But as people's needs become more internal, more personal, it can be harder to discern how and where God is working. We need to become conversant with the kinds of things that God uses to reveal his presence and his activity in our, well, his presence and activity in the lives of people that we know and love. And first and foremost, that means that we need to be present with them. We need to be trustworthy and faithful presences in someone's life in order to have the proximity to see them, to hear them, to allow them to share with us what's really going on. While Jesus heard his Father's voice with perfect clarity, we do not. And so we should be very slow to assume that we know what's going on in someone else's life or that we know what's best for them. The doorway to that kind of understanding is opened by that person sharing it with us. Okay, but once they've opened that door, they've started letting us in on where it seems like God is at work in their life, how do we listen Yeah, we listen with empathy, we listen with humility, but what are we listening for? What might help us recognize God's presence and activity in their lives? Well, I would suggest that it probably starts with learning to recognize God's presence and activity in our own lives. Beth and Dave Borum are two friends of mine. They're spiritual directors, and they lead, run Fall Creek Abbey here in Indianapolis. It's a retreat center in the city. And they've written a book all about that question of how can we learn to see God's work around us. It's called When Faith Becomes Sight. Now their focus in in that book is on recognizing God's work in our own lives. But it translates pretty well, I think, 
to our desire to perceive what God is doing around us in the lives of people that we want to share the gospel with. And they list a handful of these signs or these kinds of evidence of God's movement, and they've given them some pretty memorable names. So I actually, I think it's going to be up on the screen. Yeah. Um, I want to list these and just encourage you to think about them. I'm not even going to have time to explain them very much in depth. There are shimmering attractions that come to us in life. These are objects or scenes or sounds that might be common, they might be exceptionally rare, but which take you by surprise and they arrest your attention and then suddenly they're full of meaning and beauty. It's like this thing begins to shimmer in life and God's presence is there somehow. There are things that we might call transcendent moments. These are moments when you suddenly and just inexplicably become aware of being part of something far greater than yourself. Like God, even if you didn't believe in God to begin with, was breaking into your life somehow. There are recurring themes and symbols. These are big ideas or images or repeating patterns in life that weave together and they build in meaning. They accumulate in meaning over time like themes in a piece of music or different instruments being added to a symphony. There are slender threads. These are the unseen connections in life that start to bring circumstances together in a providential way. These are the kinds of things that People who are not really given to thinking about God or believing that there's an unseen hand at work, they might just chalk it up to coincidence or random circumstance. But it's hard to just call it coincidence after so much time. And then there are these things that we might call fertile voids. It's not quite the same as the classic idea of a dark night of the soul, but it's similar to that. A fertile void is this experience of absence of unwanted change, of loss, tied to external circumstances in some way. But in the silence and in the darkness of that experience, God is beginning to make something grow. And at first we may not be aware of it at all, but over time we start to see hints, teases here and there that God is at work in the silence and the darkness. Now, I know that was fast and and brief. Each one of those categories gets a whole chapter in this book that I mentioned, so I really do encourage you to read it at some point. But if we can recognize things like those, they are all significant ways of seeing God's presence and work in your life and in the work of others. Now, the nature of things like that means that we really need to be up close and personal to people to be able to see that kind of thing. These are not kinds of evidence that we can see in another person's life from far away. This sort of thing is probably not what people are eager to share with total strangers either. And that points us back to some of our earlier sermons in this series. If we're going to be faithful witnesses of the gospel to other people, we need to be with them. We need to be in relationship with them. And so, one potential barrier to being able to perceive the signs of God's activity is simply not being close enough to people. I think another barrier is anxiety. Anxiety has this way of giving us tunnel vision, of constricting our field of view just down to this hyper-focus on ourselves, our life, our problems. And if we're dealing with anxiety on some level, the chances are that we are missing 
a pretty big swath of input from the world, evidence that God is at work. Really, any emotional state we, we might be in that takes up a lot of processing space in our hearts and in our minds robs us of the ability to be present to others. So if we can cultivate the kind of spiritual life that keeps us aware of our interior world and helps us bring every bit of that into our relationship with God, we are much more likely to recognize God's presence around us. A final barrier on, on this idea here of seeing God at work may simply just be an underdeveloped curiosity on our parts. One of the great stories of the Bible that shows us what discerning God's activity is like is the story of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. While Moses is out in the wilderness tending his father-in-law's sheep, he notices this bush one day that is on fire, but it's not being burned up. Now, Moses could have chalked it up to some weird desert mirage, like I've been out here for too long, I'm thirsty, I'm just seeing things, and he could have ignored it. He could have been more concerned about the sheep that he was watching and be like, no, I gotta, I'm going over here after these guys because this one, he's, he, he's always getting into trouble. I can't pay attention to this. But that's not what Moses did. Instead, he said, I must turn aside to see this great sight. And it's only then, after he's turned aside, after he's drawn close, that the Lord calls his name out of the burning bush and he gives him a commission to return to Egypt and to lead Israel out of slavery. Friends, how often do we not say, I must turn aside to see this great sight? How often are we aware of something that startles us with possibility from God, but which we don't then take the step of drawing close to look at more closely? If we live with an expectancy that God is already present and at work in our surroundings, we can nurture the kind of holy curiosity about what he's doing in our neighbor's lives, and we can see better. And that leads us to the final part of Jesus' pattern for preaching the gospel. First, he saw himself as being sent by God. He saw, he noticed, he paid attention to what God was doing around him, and now Jesus joined in what God was already at work doing. Remember his words again in John 5.19. He said, The Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same way. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he's doing. Just because Jesus was God in the flesh, the one through whom God was working, that doesn't mean that God was absent or doing nothing from you know, prior to Jesus being on the scene or even in other parts of the world when Jesus was there in first century Palestine. God was already at work in, for example, Zacchaeus's heart so that when that wee little man climbed up his sycamore tree, Jesus could then later look up and recognize in him somebody who was longing for the forgiveness of God. God was already at work in the Samaritan woman at the well so that when Jesus finally met her there on that day, he recognized in her a thirst for God and he asked her for a drink and led to a conversation that changed her life. And the way in which Jesus would join his father's work that had already started 
was along the lines that we have already seen in this series. Jesus practiced hospitality. Jesus practiced a radical form of presence with people. But there's more. Jesus saw and responded to people's real needs in life. Jesus saw that Zacchaeus didn't just need to square up his debts with the people that he had you know, overtaxed and skimmed off the top from. Zacchaeus needed to get square with God. But then in some circumstances, when Jesus met that deeper spiritual need, brought somebody forgiveness, he also saw and met a pressing physical need as well. When he told a paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven and then the Pharisees flipped out because that's only something that God can do, Jesus responded by healing the man's body as well to show that two equally impossible, two equally only God could do this kinds of feats, he had the authority to do. But in addition to hospitality and presence, in addition to meeting real-world needs, Jesus also joined God's work by reframing people's situations around himself and around this gospel of the kingdom that he came to preach. And that is super important. Because as we think about how we are going to join in what God is doing in our friends, our neighbors' lives, that's ultimately what needs to be on our mind. Now, that doesn't mean that we're trying to shoehorn Jesus into every conversation that we have. If our first word to a non-Christian single mother whose child has just been diagnosed with leukemia is something along the lines of, you know, this reminds me of a guy named Jairus in the Gospels, and let me just tell you about what Jesus did for his child. No. Our first word to somebody in that circumstance is a hug and probably a whole lot of silence and a meal train and a carpool set up to get her other kids to school. But at the same time, we always need to keep in mind that God is bending everything toward Christ. As our situations and our relationships evolve over time with these friends, we watch and we listen for deeper needs and longings that God is stirring up. The desire for a drink that is really a cry for a drink of living water. Now, there's one big thing that I don't want to miss here. I realize that the emphasis in this series has been on preaching the gospel to the people in our immediate surroundings, people that God brings across our paths. And that's good. That's where we need to start. But what happens when we start to see God's work in other parts of the world or in something that becomes larger than just our neighborhood or our city? God's command to preach the gospel is not bounded by geography. It's not bounded by social context. And so even though he starts revealing his work to us in the people and in the circumstances immediately around us, he will inevitably broaden our vision beyond those horizons. Think of the book of Acts that we were studying for most of the early part of this year. The key verse in that book is chapter 1, verse 8. Spoken by Jesus to his disciples, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in, in Judea and Samaria, and to all the ends of the earth. That right there is the basic roadmap for the book of Acts. The disciples saw God's outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, and they joined him in proclaiming the good news about Jesus to the Jews who were there from all over the world. And then from there, the apostles, it's a word that means sent ones, by the way, 
these sent ones witness the ripple effects of God's work moving farther and farther out into the world, and they followed him to those places. They joined God in what he was already doing. So for all the good and true emphasis on following God and preaching the gospel right where we are, let's never lose sight of the fact that God is at work across the world. And when he opens your eyes to it in a way that is communicating a calling to you, you are to, you're to go and join him there too. Okay, so what are some of the barriers that we face to showing up and joining God like this? Honestly, I think one of the biggest barriers is just the fullness of our lives. We're, when we're scheduled out to the margins. If there is no breathing room in our lives, there's no open space around the edges of our lives, we are severely limited as to how we can show up and join God in what he's doing. That also can breed a sort of anxiety, like we were talking about earlier, an anxiety that fills us up and it crowds out our, our mental and emotional and relational bandwidth. And I'm saying this to you this morning from personal firsthand experience with that. I absolutely need to have rhythms and practices of spiritual and emotional health in my life if I'm going to be in any kind of position to see myself as sent, to be able to notice what God is doing around me, and then to feel like I've got the resources to go and be with those people and meet them and be a gospel messenger for them. Now, that doesn't mean that I keep those rhythms perfectly or that I even do it most days of the week. But I and we need to have a baseline of spiritual health coming out of contemplative rhythms with God so that we are aware of what's going on inside us and around us. So I'm going to close here. Our practice this week, we, you know, we do these practice guides alongside uh, all of the formation, the messages in our formation series. And our practice for this final week is simply the practice of prayer. If we are still kind of on the, the front edge of seeing ourselves as sent ones out in the world, that can be the thing that we pray about. Lord, help me to believe that you really are sending me to speak and to live out your good news to others. That could be your prayer this week. Or if we already believe that, but we're having trouble seeing the signs of God's presence and work around us, that's what we pray about. Lord, open my eyes. I want to see you at work. And if God is already showing you some things and putting specific people or groups or circumstances on your heart, what could you be praying for them? Because a movement of prayer like this starts in discernment, just asking what to pray for, and it moves more and more into intercession, asking for the gospel to be heard and to be manifested in real life so that people can hear it and believe it and be changed by it. Friends, we are all preachers, every one of us, whether we thought of ourselves that way or not. Preaching the gospel happens when God's beloved sent ones see where he's already at work, and then go to join him. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Jesus, we are really in awe of the fact that you would choose to send us as your Father sent you, to give us a commission into this world to make you known. Lord, most days we do not feel up to that task. We're aware of our sin we know our frailty. We know our ignorance. But Lord, thank you that you see beyond those things. 
And it's not up to us, it's actually up to you. So God, we offer ourselves to you today and we ask that you would help us to understand that we truly are sent by you and what that means. Help us to see with your eyes what's happening around us and then give us courage, give us faith to join you in what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.